1: Welcome to My Public Life as an American Nerd. All right, gang. I know, I know, I know. Just by the picture, I know. You are ready to listen to some Sid Vicious. And we are going to get into some Sid Vicious. But there is a little bit of groundwork that I need to lay before we get into the show. Okay, the first bit of groundwork is that this is going to be a two-parter. Originally, it was planned to be just one part. But Mr. Udi Sid Vicious gave us such copious and wonderful content that we were able to split it into two. So we are going to have the first part and they're both, I believe between like 40, 45 minute segments. Um, and it just, it's, he really, he was just really open about everything. And I just totally enjoyed it. And I, I'm pretty sure that you guys are going to enjoy it too. So, this episode, we are going to explore. Well, the whole episode mainly is is I approached it to to look at Sid as an individual, not the character Sid. Now, we do get into Sid Vicious towards the end of the show, and intermittently he talks about his life as a wrestler in you know he, he even talks a little bit about like uh, New Japan. And how he was going to be the replacement for Bruiser Brody. He talks about that. He he gives us such great content. And I'm very excited that I even had the opportunity to sit down with one of my favorite childhood heels. Now, initially, uh, I remember him in the, the WCW when he was with... Danny Spivey. In fact, he talks a little bit about that too. And, um, you know, going into WWF as Sid Justice and turning heel on Hulk Hogan. And it was just a great time. You know, it's kind of neat because you don't really think when you're a child and you're watching these two giants battle each other, that you're going to have an opportunity to speak with them. And, he just it was just great. And I, I did my absolute best not to be a fanboy. And though this is the my public life as an American nerd, I tried to not nerd out. And that was for the the listening content of all of you. Okay, a little housekeeping, and then we will get on with the show. Uh for anybody that is brand new to the Jasel Modcast Podcast Network, we offer Five shows currently, possibly six in the, the making, um, and we stretch all from Monday to Friday. We cover things from uh, literature in the World of Myth Bits, which is a derivative from the World of Myth podcast. And you can check that out, the World of Myth Bits, and you can find them on Facebook and Twitter and you can find the World of Myth magazine which is coming out very shortly with our 15 year anniversary issue and it's offered through multiple mediums as far as like digital online and PDF to print format and you can check that out at www.theworldofmyth.com All right and then We have Tuesdays, which is my show. It's an interview session, which is called Who's the Boss? And we look at entrepreneurship and we interview entrepreneurs. Wednesday, as as it is today, is my public life as an American nerd. And typically I go through and I just nerd out about stuff. It's just had one of these beautiful opportunities to sit down and interview a, a legend that is part of nerd and pop culture. Then Thursday, we go back to Canada with Iron Mike Lutz and dispatch from shed Quarters. And he just talks about a whole bunch of stuff that goes on in his world. And it's just fascinating. I don't know. He just, he lives, to me, I think he lives a fascinating life. He doesn't think so, but I like it. And then Friday's. We jump in the Wayback Machine because we have almost 900 individual podcasts within the span of 2012 to now with host Randolph Lofgren. And we listen to three hours of audio entertainment in Flashback Fridays every Friday. And that is our lineup for the Jazel Modcast Podcast Archives. All right, gang, here we go as we get ready to indulge. And we jump into the mind of Psycho Sid Vicious and Joy. Welcome to My Public Life as an American Nerd. I am your host, David K. Montoya. All right, gang. We have literally been counting down since what the 17th of last month when I found out we had the uh, opportunity to speak with our guest today. And it is just an amazing opportunity to have an oppor- have the opportunity to pick this gentleman's brain because he's a legend, and I want to explore his thoughts, his backgrounds, and at the same time, give you an entertaining show. So without further ado, from the great state of Arkansas, go Hogs, may I introduce to you the man who rules the world, Mr. Sid Udi. Welcome, sir.
0: Thank you, Dave mentor. Thank you very much. That's a great introduction. You know what something else is uh, someone else in this from Arkansas so the, the great uh third baseman for the Baltimore Orioles, Brooke Robinson. Brooks Robinson, I got a chance to meet him at the uh, Spokes X- Sport Expo last year at the uh in Washington for the All Star game and got an autograph baseball from the guy.
1: Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, it was pretty cool. I'm, I'm fortunate, and I say fortunate sincerely, because and uh, the very first time we spoke on the phone, uh, I mentioned my, my father and my best friend still live in the state of Arkansas. So I, I, I still hold my honorary card as an Arkansan. I want to, like I, I mentioned, I wanted to go into your life a little bit. And the first question I have is, what was it like growing up? in Arkansas.
0: Well, thanks, you know, it'll be in the book. I just give you a really quick radiation of my family and how we got here and who we we're all who we all are a little bit and how I got to be maybe who I am today from the family I have. But um growing up here in Arkansas was tough. You know, um Goes back. I remember my earliest memories. You know, as as a child, uh, living with my grandmother and grandfather, and my father and mother, my great father, grandfather, and my great grandmother, and my aunt, and my uncle. We all sm- lived in one little small house. It was tough, you know. Being, you know, um, you know, we were poor. Um, you know, it, um, it's funny. You know, my great grandfather. They uh, all lived in Mississippi before this is years before I was born. On the way home one night, he was ambushed by a couple guys and he shot and killed both of them in self-defense. Even though it was self-defense, they asked him to move to somewhere else because they were really not wanted there anymore. So they moved just 20 miles from where I live right now, a place called Jordan, Arkansas. And I actually lived just 20 miles from there. Now, him himself was a sharecropper. Um, and that's a tough life for someone, you know, you got, uh, he had, you know, four, Four children, four sons, and a daughter. And, um, and if you look back on some pictures I've got in here, it's pretty desolate, you know. I remember my uncle telling a story the other day, but I remember his mom, my grandmother telling him and my father and my aunt to go outside and play. They were like, what's well, what, man? It's just dirt <laughs> out there, you know. And truly, I, had, um, writing this book, me and Greg Norman writing, like, went out there and, to the old farm where they lived, and they still, at the time, it's not there today, but just about six months ago, it's still there. Just a little bit of the front of the old shack that they all lived in is. Oh, you I mean. look at it and you think, how, how did that many people live in a place that small? Well, then um, now, with my grandfather, with grandmother, my aunt, who were the staples of my life, you know, my grandfather worked for the union. He, was, he had polio, and um, he drove a dozer his whole life, so he had to go over where the work was with the interstate. So they moved away and pretty much left me, you know, you know, it should have been like this with my mom and dad, my sisters. And of course my mom and dad were split up. I remember early, uh, probably I was three, four years old for, you know, when they were already divorced and just really remember, you know, having a tough, you know, when you're a kid, I guess, you know, that's why we, we always hear that you're protected from things like, you don't things you don't realize is like, you know, I remember, um, stories like this it just wasn't you know when we had supper there just wasn't there wasn't meat every night and There was a lot of beans and mm. um potatoes and things like that matter of fact i had so many beans the kid i swore when i got older i'd never eat a bean yeah. now <laughs> now they're actually a big part of my, I, I i like them more than i, I did you know after a while mother not my father's mother he bought me a mower uh to make me make a little money but the deal was i had to pay her back so the first you know, pretty much the first summer I just, you know, was working to pay her back. And I remember getting a couple of dollars. Um and and I don't forget this, you could get a round steak for like forty cents. And uh after I spent the two dollars with my my buddy Mitchell, we were doing the art together, I think we both had like a dollar a piece. and I walked to the store, and got myself a, a round steak at the time. It looked like the biggest piece of meat I ever cooked in my life. And I remember cooking it and my three sisters sitting there and watching me and they're asking, Hey, you going to give us a bite of that? And, and I said, no. And I, <laughs> I mean, it, it sounds funny, but it's not funny, uh, David. So, um, it was because of necessity. You know, I, I mean, that's the first piece of meat I'd ever had in my life, first oh. steak. Oh, wow. You know? And I, that's no kidding. And so, um, that again, you know, very running this book called, uh, poetry and saying a little bit of what my life's about is that. You know, um, I wasn't going to share that first piece of steak I'd had, not with her, not with my sisters, not with my mother, if she would have been there or anyone. Um, again, that was my first piece of steak I'd ever had in my life.
1: How old were you, sir? So
0: I was probably um, about the fifth grade. So, what is that? About 10, or 11, something like that, maybe.
1: Okay. Oh, uh, goodness. So I,
0: I, but, I, but I remember that, you know, just clear as bell, because you know, my sister's standing over me holding a bite of that. And I just, wouldn't give it to him because again you know it's just that's how it was now as i got a little older i was lucky enough i got a job um working for a neighbor uh, a few doors down the neighborhood was was a farmer and i started making as a young kid i actually started making pretty good money uh, to where i bought my first vehicle at 15 that's back when uh, you know could be 16 to get licensed but in mississippi there was uh you could drive at 15 and i used to farm address to get my license and i bought myself an old matter but doing that this is um how it was this type of work ethics i had growing up from you know seeing my great grandfather being a hard worker my grandfather and really what it ended up being i ended up working as on this on the on this farm and i actually was pretty much doing what my great grandfather was and that was sharecropping i was just working in another man's ground and um just one county over from where they were and, um, but doing that though, however, at, say when I was 15, I got that first Maverick I bought and used for like 750 bucks, well, but I'd always take my checks. You know, I'd only work during the summer, after baseball season, just a little bit during the winter. And, um, so every check I ever got, and every cash I put in the bank, and I te- kept telling everyone all the time that you know, one day I'm going to get myself a new car, and, if, you know, uh, even a couple of girlfriends I had at the time, the girlfriend that I was dating when I got the new car, she said, you should "No, know, I really never believed you. really get in this car, you know, because you know they see me this so old beat up Maverick, and you know just barely getting by." But I was able to do that. I was able to save my money, I ordered that car one year ahead of time. and I bought myself a brand new 1978 Z28 Camaro. Oh uh, my bright gosh! White blue, blue metallic. And when it came in, I, I had all the two hundred dollars to pay cash for it, and I borrowed the two hundred dollars from the guy I worked from and pay you back. So even even then uh um, my work ethic was there uh, I worked longer hours and during you know harvesting times that I could I literally worked 24 hours straight take a three-hour nap and go right back to work you know and that's no exaggeration and um so in a, in a crazy way not a crazy way but the way it really happened you know again I was sharecropping just you know one county over from where my great-grandfather and, grandparents were sharecropping and I went from that straight into wrestling.
1: Oh wow! And that's actually, I'm I'm glad you you did that because you actually answered my second question, which was you are known. I again, I've done my my homework on you, and you are considered one of the hardest workers there is. And I was going to ask if that comes from living in the South, from your upbringing, but obviously it is. It's there. It's implemented. Right.
0: Well, that's the thing is, now, I'm going to give you a real quick story um, about my aunt who came out of that same little shack there. Uh, she just passed away right a few years ago. Know, she, she went to school. Um, this, you know, Memphis School of Nursing was one of the hardest schools back in those days. Cause there were a lot of nuns. Gave you a lot of hard work. But she passed. She got got her nurse practitioner license. She um, got a job in Michigan, worked a little bit, and then she decided to go be a missionary, and she went to missionary and the, the deal was if, you know, the car you had going into is the person you were going to give that car away to someone coming out. And, you know, she heard making pretty good money for a single woman. Uh, she had a brand-new Pontiac Catalina, so she gave that away. When she was coming out missionary to go take care of my grandmother who was dying of cancer, she got a little Volkswagen, um, one of those little Volkswagen uh, Beetles. And that's what she drove from Mexico all the way to uh Florida, where my grandparents live. Oh, goodness. But her, she came in to there. She got her job at the clinic. And she said, AIDS. And then she says to the administration or the head person at the Titus Hill clinic says, Hey, we, we got a lot of AIDS patients, but we're not, we don't have any room for them. And they said, we're not going to have any room for them. Now she has a great belief in, in religion and her, her belief is really strong. So she says, well, I know what I'm going to do with the rest of my life because she really looked at AIDS as being a modern-day form of leprosy. Mm. And it, really, it really is, or was, or still is. So she started the first AIDS clinic. Oh, wow. And just two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I went down, and uh, they just christened a new wing to her clinic called the Joyce Good Center. Her, her, her center called Comprehensive Healthcare Slash Unconditional Love, and that comes from the faith. But well, she started with just a, um, just the office. It had a desk, a scale, and, uh, and that was it. And, uh, and she couldn't guarantee anything, but and she said, but you'll leave with a hug. And that was her motto. And before she passed away, her clinic stretches almost the whole city block. So that is the work ethics. And those are the kind of people that that's where I come from. And those are the people that I look up to. And that's where I, I want to be like that. And, and, having those kind of people you know, my grandfather who's um a really quiet guy, given polio, um worked his ass off his whole life. Um when you have again that kind of role model it's hard not to have, you know, good work ethics.
1: Oh my goodness, I could only imagine. Now you mentioned your aunt and I, I know um that you were very close with her and that she was a very religious and spiritual person and I know that you you co-wrote or you um, wrote a book uh, dedicated to her and you had mentioned in a previous show that you you had to kind of investigate the the, the religion and the right. spiritual aspect of things do you consider yourself a, a religious person
0: well this is the thing is um, quote you got to help you write to book to the plane Wallace and he is someone who was working himself towards priesthood. He was a youth master. when I met him, and he helped me do a documentary that uh, I, I do a little on the side. makes I like making film documentaries, short films to put into film festivals. And with we called it the promotion. It was about it was just the opposite of the movie The Wrestler, it was where the small town wrestling where there was no cussing and you know I, I I said this before. I like to be handcuffed a little bit to make it harder. But we showed a different style of that. So after doing that is after my aunt passed and me and him decided to try to write this book Now, Brandon would be also the first to tell you he's not, he wrote a book about himself, about his life and religion, but he's not a great book writer. So we got into it. It just wasn't going like, man, um, we got talked into, okay, let's write a book about her and add it, but let's go ahead and write and just make the whole story about, you know, your life as well. And so uh, Brandon just wasn't, I know, uh, cut out to do that. And we actually laughed about how bad his writing was. We were still good friends. And, and then my friend Barry Norman is taking over and he's actually going to fly in here. Uh, it in this month or beginning of the next month. And, uh, that way we can get him, um, he can get a visual. And the reason we're doing that is because the movie, um, In Cold Blood by Truman Capote, that's how he, I think that's why his book was so good. And it turned out to be a movie because he actually went to the place and, saw the guys, and mm. went down the roads, and they get get to do the same thing with me as a kid here. You know, Dave, me and uh, one of my best friends, Mitchell, we used to wake up every morning at 3, 3.30, and I don't care how hard it was raining or not raining, uh, what the temperature was, we would take off walking, and I lived in West Memphis, and we would walk all the way to the Mississippi River and hunt every patch of woods there on the, and on the way back. That's uh, about a 30-mile round trip. And so, you know, those are some of the stories we're going to put in my book. And that, that again proves, you know, and, and this is no kidding. And I'll never forget shooting and killing one single dove. You know, that's all we saw that day. And I came home, I cleaned it, cooked it, cooked it and ate it. Because uh, that's how bad, you know, I wanted meat you know, or some type of meat. And we were taught to also, if you kill something, you, you dress it, you clean it, and you eat it. You don't just kill anything. Right. And so, but those, um. Barry's going to come here we're going to be able to go through that and, and things like that. But to get back to Joyce was that, you know, she was a real religious, not, not to the point you never know what to talk to her, because mm-hmm. um, she, she did it. And she never talked about God. She has, she definitely had a version on how things are supposed to work. But um, after she moved away, I sort of lost my touch of religion and actually people I started working for, you know, were, I think they formed. Nearly around 60,000 acres. They were big farmers and, and most of the family were uh, non-believers in religion. And, um, so this is, you know, this goes on for, you know, 15 years or so. I don't really, I'm out of contact with my aunt, out of contact with religion. And I see these people being so successful. And I'm thinking, you know, you hear them explain it and they go, you know, God, there's no such thing as God. you know, and I never forget one time we were all in a group going to a place, an uh, amusement park, that means my buddies had worked ourselves uh, where they the family decided to take us, me and all my buddies, and with their family to a place called Liberty Land. And I remember walking up to a ride, and you know, one of the um, Twist family said, you know, you can tell that's a group of religious people up there and I asked them, how, do you, how can you tell that? Well, you can tell by that one person, he's wearing glasses, and the other person's got Broke out with pimples, and the other person's fat, and, and I said, "What does that mean?" They said, "Well, religious people have to have a crutch to lean on, and that's what God is—a crutch." And it was so obvious to me that they were right about that. I started, you know, doubting religion too, hmm. and so I went through that whole rest of the part of my life, really not, um, you know, that much of a believer. And then after she passed, and I said, you know, to be able to write about her and find out more about her life about this religious stuff i I you know brandon uh introduced me to a church called saint mary's cathedral episcopalian church is the oldest church in memphis and just lucky as my aunt told me to when we're finding the church be sure there's no hidden agenda like raising money for schools or blah 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 and this church doesn't have that it's a really poor little church and so going there learning about this um really i have a lot of regret i wish i Went to church or had a chance to go, you know, most of my life. But have done this. Now I am learning, you know, more about what to write about her when I do write.
1: Very cool. Okay. Here's a question for you. And I I almost bet you you've probably never been asked this. With the writing with your own book and with about your aunt, plus there is um, stories of you being a booker in WCW days. Mm-hmm. Do you consider yourself a creative person?
0: Yes, I do. Um, uh, David. And I'll tell you why. Um, when I first got into the wrestling business, everybody knows this. I didn't get into this business because I was a fan. I got into it with money. And I looked at it as a business, you know, not as, um, you know, as um, my lifelong dream to be a wrestler. And I've gotten into it. The lucky deal is, uh, we are, I've said this to me in interviews that I was in the right place at the right time. And, and most of the time, person in the territory. It seemed like I was hanging out with was using the the booker. Uh, Like, for instance, in in Continental it was Robert Fuller. Now, I think we'll all say that Robert Fuller is not a great booker, but I learned some things. um, Nothing I would use myself in, you know, like trying to trick people into buying a ticket that you're going to give away a fur coat that you want to give away. Those were, you know, things they did in those little small territories. But again, from there, and then after him was Eddie Gilbert. Mm-hmm. Now, Eddie Gilbert, in my opinion, is one of, you know, at that time, it's not one of, not the smartest, um, mind for the business. It was in the business at the time. So I got to absorb a lot with him. I got to be with him all the time. You know, Eddie took my hand. This is why I, this is why I was, I've been successful with some of the guys I have created. Is, uh, I really believe you have to do this sometimes. You have to actually hold their hand, walk them through it, eliminate them. Mistakes, possibility of their mistakes and their errors, uh, to give them a, a good chance to get over. Them. And uh, an example of that is, um, you know, I created Harlem Heat, Carl Parker. And, uh, when I, by doing that, I even wrote all Parker's interviews and helped Heat with all their interviews, actually gave them their name, their identity, and all that. Now, as we got going there after a while, I had to concentrate on myself. Now, what happened was when I first came into back to WCW, I had learned a whole lot from WWF that WCW just wasn't doing. It was easy to want to implement those things and that would be easy success to do those things and and see results right away. So coming back, Bill Watts was the the booker at the time and our first conversation in the office. He says, man, I I really want you um, working in the office with me. And I said, I'd love to. Well, a week later as I come back in you know, work my deal out, he's gone and Ole Anderson in. Well, Ole was you know, sort of like me from the first time around, so Ole just kept me in the office, and that's when I started creating ideas, like, you know, in angles and, and and creating, you know, characters. So I know if I had just time just to do that, then I would do really well at that. And you ask that question, it's funny you ask that, then, you know, a friend of mine, Norman, he's a great writer himself, he's He's been in the restaurant business since the beginning days of WCW to the end, the ending days. And and then on top of that, being a good writer as well, we actually put our name together as a package deal, and I had my lawyer handed to WWE uh, just for writing, just to be on the writing team. Because I heard of all these names that were being mentioned, and then I just every day I hear something else. I hear how bad it's not still working for him. And I'm hoping one day that this will take it serious and uh, give us a chance to do that.
1: That would be I, – I. number one, I, I liked the whole – especially during that time with uh, Harlem Heat and, and the introduction uh, to Colonel Parker. Right? He was, like, m- my favorite Hill manager. It, uh, honestly, it was. Yeah,
0: um, so I came up with that. That was an um, easy thing to make up. It was just a runoff of um, – the original Colonel Parker. And what I wanted in like Houston was just, you know, do a couple weeks of interviews. They did really come out like I wanted because I couldn't be there for him. I was still getting out of my contract, but he did a good job of introducing me coming back to WCW as like the real Elvis. And that's what our intention was. Then after that, I didn't need a manager. We put him with Hall of Eight. And then I think he, um, and that's where I that was. That's what we were going into. I got lucky when, um, when I just got in with WCW. I was asked to come in and do a benefit for Cary Viner in Texas. And when I did, I went down there specifically to hire Holden Heat. And I was going to also hire the uh, Sean Waltman, who had just been hired by WWF at the time. Well, I would have hired him as well. Okay. So this is the thing is, is when I did the, Came up with the character Colonel Parker. I was doing it for an Oli and Jim Barnett. Now Jim Barnett and Oli both knew uh, Robert from you know earlier. Uh, I think I didn't think Robert booked for Jim Barnett and maybe also booked for Oli for a sh- small time right there in that Charlotte NWA area. So um they knew of him. So when I was came up with the character and the name and the and how the voice would be and how the character would be, you know, I was mimicking in the office one day and and jim barnett asked me he said Sid, do you think robert can do this character as well as you're doing it and i said well he will be able to mr barnett because i'm gonna be right there with him and um so we brought robert in to memphis bought that suit for him which the company paid me back for Bought him that hat (coughs) those boots and then uh, a couple other suits that were able to kind of just one suit and, and then the rest is history And um, then, like I said, I wrote every one of his interviews until the day I left WCW.
1: It was a good team. Honestly, it was. Okay, I I have another one for you. What came first? The love of softball or the love of wrestling?
0: Well, the love of softball, I was already playing softball before wrestling. And, um, you know, of course, the love of softball just trickled over from the love of baseball. And then, um, and then, of course, softball is like uh, you know, everything, and I think. in Baseball, I was uh, a great team player, and I played all positions and, and hit for average and stuff like that, but you know, you're always hitting for the home run. And in slow-pitch softball, that's all you're hitting for, uh, pretty much. So, that was um, that was a lot of fun.
1: So, have you always excelled in sports, or was it just something that you decided to try your hand at?
0: No. You know what's funny? I, I'm not bragging, just now, as a tall person, and I told my children this, especially Frank, the oldest one, he was really into sports, I said, now, you realize, you know, being tall, you're going to be a late bloomer, meaning it might be, you know, your last year, a little league before you really pick it up and you know, before you go to pay Ruth. That's sort of what happened for me. I actually picked the baseball really early. But basketball and football were things that, you know, because when you're going through those growth spurts, you're not as fast and you have to, you know, gear yourself up for those things. But, I mean, I played all sports. If you go well at all, love box, box, karate, um, um, you know, baseball, football. Now, basketball came a little late to me because I wasn't a great jumper at first. Uh just didn't have that jumping ability. And then when I had that, then basketball came around. Even when I was a, shoot, I want to say I was in about the fifth grade and I bowled my first perfect game of 300. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I'll tell you the funny thing about it was that I was so new to bowling, I didn't know how to keep score, and this is the way I was taught to keep scores: like if you got a, um, you know, uh, you know, a strike, you just put an X, it would say if you got nine pins and one pin, that would be, you know, t- ten pins, or if you got eight and one, that would be nine. So that's how I kept score. When I got across the end of the the, the score sheet, and all strikes. Now, what happened was I didn't know that you would get two more strikes, uh, or two more bowls after the strike. So I really didn't have a 300 game, but there would have be been a chance for one if I would have known how to really have kept score. Gotcha. And really, I was one of these people that could see something and mimic it. Now, what really helped me, Dave, well, honestly, and I, I sent both of my boys to it, and that's karate. But well, what karate teaches you, uh, other than a lot of self-confidence and things like that, it teaches you how to use your right hand and your left hand, your right foot, and your left foot equally. So th- even at a young age, I was, uh, I- I'm almost positive, I think I'm safe to say this, but I was the first original hitter that I remember back in those days. You know?
1: That's very cool. Um, how long did you uh, practice, or do you still practice?
0: Well, I don't practice softball anymore. i anymore than I did, guys. It was. Uh, I mean, I remember going to the batting range, and when I would leave, I'd have blisters all over my fingers and hands. It just, I, I just wouldn't give up. And I remember too baseball games, and you know, we had a pretty good old coach back in the days, and we would have you know rules we had to go by on game day. You couldn't go swimming, you couldn't go out. You know, you owe your yard or make money or whatever. So you just sit in the house all day and you will be ready for the game. And you sit there all day like that. And then if it was to rain, I really, really remember sitting there and crying. You know, you know. now I was going to have to walk across town to, to my game and practice, but that didn't matter. I would have done it blindfolded. But uh, I remember when we did have rain out, I'd, I'd actually cry
1: about it. Oh, yeah. There's just that love, that intensity for it. Yeah,
0: just, uh, just, you know, again, back in those days, I think we had better coaches. Uh, I think coaches, they're good for us, but, um, they don't work on the fundamentals like the coaches did back in the days. I enjoyed, believe it or not, taking, you know, just grounders and pop-ups. I could just, you get, I could, I was one of those kids, you could hit grounders too all day long and I just take the next one, and the next one. You know, it was just that, that kind of love for it. I and mean, then I remember the seeing guys that grew up back in that same era and the same time, um, guys that didn't sell, they remember things like I We doing things, you know, young ages, like catching the ball, sitting there and catching with the end of it a you before. Know, the ball was ever, the ball would never stop. And I just had that, I, I just had
1: a natural difference for things like that. That's, <laughs> that's, I, I, I envy that. I'm actually I just, just the opposite. The opposite. <laughs> okay, now, Because
0: being so poor, uh, David, I used a, I was right-handed, but I used a left handed glove to let me have a glove. Oh, wow. Some of down the street loaned me one, so I was using their gloves with the wrong hand. Wow. Yeah.
1: So after starting the sports and getting involved, how long after that did you decide to go into weightlifting?
0: Now, weightlifting was uh, something I really admired from a distance. I remember always being a big fan of the Hercules movies and, I think we all remember that, um, that little cartoon short, little short comic deal was about the guy getting the sand kicked in his face. I, I read that. Oh, yeah. Like so many other other people did. And then just, I, you know, remember seeing those movies, Hercules back in those days. And man, I wanted to look like that. And then, um, I remember buying my first wig set was those, one of those little concrete things. I was probably, oh, 17, 18 years old. Then you know, I remember mean, you know, buying my first gym membership at Central I like at 19. And to then on, it was just, that was just, it, it, and again, weightlifting made me a better softball player because, you know, I was stronger and faster. And so, um, and then again, it's just something I think people do not ever, you know, I think last time I checked, you know, only 15% of the population in the country or the world is interested in weightlifting, but only like, the high percent actually do something about it. And I think that that percent is even dropped now. Wow. So again, it was just I was that one percent that wanted, you know, big muscles and all that. And uh, to me, that just was uh, what I wanted to look like.
1: So what was your training regimen or is it, is it still as intense as it was?
0: No, I'll tell you why. It's just one, uh, it's 68 years old. But I just can't do what I used to do now. Dave, I've said this a thousand times. I was always. It just seems like uh, again. That's why I think it's the perfect title, "Poetry in the Sand," for my book is that. I really was in the right place at the right time. Always about everything, and then I remember I was just a skinny 185-pound little geek, and there was a guy here in town. His name is Randy Pettico, who had uh, played, you know, football in the SEC. Played, uh, you know, he boxed professionally. Knocked out a guy named Michael Good. In the silver medal Olympics that year, just uh, you know, just muscles from you know his head to his ankles, and just a scary looking guy. And uh, I remember being introduced to him from a medicine of mine, and Julius is dead now. And uh, he said, Minister, I said he'll take you and work and take you how to work out, and he did. And that's one one said. I could have not learned from anyone that had any you know any stronger work ethic as I did, and uh. We used to work out sometimes two or three times a day. You know, we had our first workout at 5 o'clock in the morning. And then he would go to work. And then when he would meet at the University of Memphis and run um, steps inside the indoor, indoor pool area, which was like 90, just like work running in a sauna. We'd do that for 45 minutes at lunch, and then we'd go back again in the afternoon and work out again. So that was how my regiment was pretty much my whole life, working out two or three times a day. And that carried on to me even when I was wrestling on the road when, um, this is no kidding, there's no exaggeration, when I'd be coming in from my first workout, having my second breakfast, and getting ready to go for my second workout before any of these other guys would even waking up. Oh, wow. And, I mean, that's, 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 uh, everybody knows that. There's a few guys that did that with me, like, uh, Holly, and Paul Willett, and Billy Gunn, and Bart Gunn. Um, they did it when they rode with me, and we all rode together, and we were caravan, or something like that, but there's only a the few people that, um, dealt with me as often as I did.
1: So, with the intense workouts, do you feel like it, it was like, um, how do I say this? This is actually, this is more of a question off the top of my head. Like, it, it was almost therapeutic. Not only physically, but mentally. You you just kind of got to cleanse yourself of everything. Well, that's
0: what working out is, Dave. It's, uh, it sets off endorphins. <clears throat> um, when the, you know, the body parts you're using and even like, and that was a uh, Big running, they have long distance, uh short distance, just hundred yard sprints and a lot of bleacher work. But, you know, that, those type of workouts also, also sit off and do things in anti inflamm, anti inflammatories that body release that money can't, um, you know, there's not a, there's not a medicine to, get to match it. Right. So it, it's just, a, you know, just like a couple of years ago, I had taken back up with boxing because, uh, you know, with the, with the, my leg breaking stuff, I was really, trying to get my foot speed back and things like this. And a guy named Kevin who runs box, boxing uh, over Memphis steel on jiu-jitsu. A guy named Blake actually runs the clinic. Really nice guy. David Ferguson is the owner. I met him four or five years ago, and he gave me a free pass to come in anytime I want. So I've got a chance to go in and work out some really great athletes, some guys that wrestled for the Olympics in Russia, you know, guys with boxing professionally. So I spent a whole summer doing that twice a day. And I don't think I've ever felt any better at any other time, any point in my life, as I did two years ago, switching over to this type of workout. That's Some awesome. weightlifting, but it's a lot of things to enhance you. And I didn't think I'd ever get back. I went back into the weightlifting things and because my core was so strong. I was back to leg pressing a thousand pounds. doing dumbbells with hundred pound on you know, bench press? And this is a this was just last year, so you know I still do it, but uh, it sometimes. um It's such a setback. I don't, but the boxing and the lightweight lifting still sweat my guts out because there's no air conditioning in place. This is the warehouse. So, um, but it's, it's, I'm still working out, but not like I was, you know, say, you know, five or six years ago.
1: Okay. I mean, but it's still, you're, you're still hitting the grind, you know. Well,
0: I remember yesterday being in there, um, I just, just sitting there and, you know, I'd sit just, you know, say five, 10, 15 minutes stretching i still sweating so bad, with just a huge pole though, so it's not like I'm slacking off. <laughs> say for instance, the last person who really worked out with me, or not worked out with me, went to the gym with me, couldn't work out with me, you know, stayed all. And he would, know, he'll, he'll tell you today, man, they call me a cyborg. <laughs> it, it's just, it's, you know, it's two hours of working out, an hour of cardio, then going to run running laps in the swim pool. So it's like, you know, I, I call it myself to a day of fitness. Sometimes I'll do that. Very cool. But again, it's not you know lifting the weights that I, I did you know you know
1: beforehand. This is actually a, a question from from me to you: Is do you find it better to lift weights and then do cardio, or vice versa?
0: Well, I, I think, wait, well, you know. So, um, science. The way the body works, I think the best way to do it like you say is uh, you want to have a good weight workout first and at my age and I do your age, but most of the people just have a you know good workout with very little rest and you do your cardio secondary because one, this is a couple, really this is one of the main reasons. The hardest thing to do for the human body is to produce a pound of lean muscle mass. So, when we do cardio first and we're a little bit tired before we do our weightlifting, that is going to be a harder objective to attain. Mm. You see what I'm saying? Yes. So, if, if you're, you know, if that, again, the more lean muscle mass we have on our body, the faster we're body fat even when we sleep. So, I saw, um, it's called a medical journal, MS, MS, MBC one night. They had four or five degrees. Minds of everybody have had a representative at his doctor. They all got to argue about which is which and blah, blah, blah. This one guy about this subject said about the hardest thing to do, to do is produce lean, one pound of lean muscle mass. They all agreed and then, then they agreed with me as well. If you, that's your objective, then working out has got to come first and then cardio will be secondary. You know, with weightlifting, your heart rate's at a place where you're, you're actually producing lean muscle mass, not you no know, getting rid of it. And then if you do your cardio where it's not so high, your heart rate so high, you don't want to burn most mass, You just want to burn stored energy, which is fat. Right. So you actually, you can really walk out and say that you do cardio for two hours. So that's why weightlifting would be most important first. I think. And then cardio
1: would be second. Well, I'm, I'm 100% being honest. I am going to try that. Absolutely. Um, well,
0: if that's how the human body works. So if you want to work with the human body, that's probably a way to think about it. And if you don't want to work with the human body, I don't think it's going to matter that much or, or one way or the other. For you, you're not going to, your, your life isn't going to be, <clears throat> try to be Mr. Olympia, stuff like that. I don't know how old you are, but if you're past the age of 26 or 30.
1: I'm 42.
0: Then it's not going to matter how you do it. you do your weightlifting first, whatever. I still think, you know, even at the age, we can still produce lean muscle mass. So, in my opinion, would still be weightlifting, weightlifting first and then cardio second.
1: Okay. Very cool. Yeah, I'm 6'2 and 230. I, I, I would like to build a little bit more. Sure. Okay, here's one question for you. Um, so, I've been doing research, and I wanted to find out, um according to what i found out you were married in 1983 and you debut in 1987 so you had been married for four years before you went into wrestling how much was being married pushed you into the world of wrestling and i think we're going to put a pin in it right there yeah i know it was just getting good huh Okay, kids, come back next Wednesday, and we will finish out this interview. It is just, it's like I told you, he was a giver. He was just open and honest, and it gets better. It gets so much more better. And you're like already in. You're like 40 minutes in, and it gets better? Yes, it gets better. I promise. So come back next Wednesday to finish the Sid Vicious, Sid Udy interview. And learn more about the man who rules the world. For this week, for my public life as an American nerd, I am David K. Montoya. And as always, I bid you adieu.